Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Todd Lacey. He's the Chief Business Development Officer at Stadium, which is an investment management firm that provides custom-managed account solutions to retirement plan advisors, plan sponsors, and participants. Todd's worked in a variety of roles within the retirement industry over the past 20 years, which I think gives him a really unique perspective and vantage point, unlike just about anyone else I know in the industry. He's been a retirement plan wholesaler. He's owned his own independent 401k advisory firm, the Clarity Group. He's held high-level executive management positions at Transamerica, and now he's leading growth at Stadion. Now, Todd and I have been good friends for nearly 15 years. And in fact, my firm, Greenspring Advisors, bought the Clarity Group in 2011 when he decided to leave the advisory industry and go back to Transamerica in an executive capacity. On today's episode, Todd and I have a wide-ranging discussion. We talk about the changes that have taken place in the retirement industry over the past 20 plus years and why he decided to leave the advisory industry after building a really successful firm, which is not something people typically do. But we spend most of our time discussing managed accounts, how these solutions have evolved over time and why their adoption has lagged traditional target date funds over the past 15 years. We also discuss how managed accounts can deliver a more personalized investment experience that people have come to expect in other areas of their life. And we also explore why certain record keepers and plan providers may be friendly or unfriendly to providing third-party managed account solutions, depending upon whether they have competing offerings, as well as some of the technology challenges to delivering managed accounts that create a really high barrier to entry. And be sure to listen to the end when Todd shares his thoughts on where the retirement industry is headed over the next five to 10 years and the role of managed accounts, as well as his single best piece of advice for making ERISA fiduciaries smarter. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast with Todd Lacey from Stadion. Okay, Todd Lacey, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. I am super excited to have you on today. I think this podcast is all about making ERISA fiduciaries smarter. I think you have a lot of great insights and experiences and and wisdom that you'll be able to kind of bring to bear throughout this discussion. So really excited and thanks for being a guest. Yeah, thanks for having me, Josh. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, one of the things I think about when I think about you and I think about your career is that you have one of the most unique vantage points in the industry of anybody I really know, just based on having done a lot of different roles. And you've seen, you know, outside of being an auditor and an ERISA attorney, you've seen really this business from all different sides. So almost 25 years ago, you and I used to be the young guys when we first met, you know, almost 15 years ago, we're, we're, we're definitely not the young guys anymore. But right out of school, late 90s, you went to work for Transamerica as a wholesaler, if I have that right. And then you moved to become director of retirement plan consulting for an advisory firm. And then you went and founded your own advisory firm, the Clarity Group, which you did for a number of years, and then actually sold to our firm based on kind of the relationship we developed years and years ago. You went to take a high-level executive role doing a number of different things over several years at Transamerica, everything from you know distribution and partnerships to kind of corporate strategy for the retirement group. And now you're at Stadium Retirement 
really focused on kind of the managed account world. So did I get all those? Did I get that that progression correct? You nailed it. That was perfect. Okay. Well, the fact that you have all those different perspectives, I think gives you, like I said, a great vantage point. So, you know, what? how have you seen kind of the industry evolve over the last 20 or 25 years? And, and what are some of the things that kind of stick out most in your mind when you think about kind of where we've come from since you started in the business? Yeah, thanks, Josh. You know, I think about 20 plus years ago, it was a very, very different industry. I think fees were much less transparent. I think there were very few advisors that really specialized in this space, particularly down market. You know, you had your consultants and firms that serve the large and jumbo market, but bringing that expertise down market, that really didn't happen probably till maybe 15-ish years ago. So at least my early experience wholesaling right out of college, I was working with advisors who did mostly benefits, insurance, and they sort of tinkered in 401k. So as a wholesaler, our job was to be the 401k expert, kind of be their 401k arm. But that also meant they were selling our product and not really doing a lot of due diligence or benchmarking on multiple you know, record-keeping options. Fees were way less transparent, I would argue much higher back then. And I also think our participant approach back then was very different. You know, we still had the optimistic perspective that if we just taught people and taught people and taught people and talked to them about mutual funds and the difference between large cap growth and small cap growth, they would then make good investment decisions. And I think we've all learned over the years that participants have good intentions, but they don't learn about these things in school generally, right? So their only education is the one hour meeting that, you know, we do in the lunchroom over pizza talking about mutual funds and tax deferred compounding. And so I think an evolution of going from trying to educate everyone to advising and then doing it for them ultimately, which I know we'll get to with managed accounts. It's been has been probably one of the biggest things that I've seen evolve. So everything from plan design has changed significantly. Again, do it for people through auto enrollment, auto escalation, more so than expecting people to save more on their own. As I mentioned, advisors like like yourselves at Greenspring now bring a huge amount of value to plan sponsors and participants. I think much more than was the case again 20 years ago. And so I think clients are getting more value from advisors generally. I think they're getting more transparency. I think the fee levels have gotten to be more reasonable. And I think participants are being served better probably than they were years ago, which all of that put together, I think, is, is a, has been a good thing net-net for, for the, the ultimate mission that we all have, which is trying to put people in a position to be able to stop working, to be able to retire one day. So I think the evolution has actually been really positive across the board for, for most constituents in the business. And then again, ultimately the sponsors and participants. Right, right. Yeah, there's been just kind of tectonic shifts, even from when we first started and met each other. Things are a lot different. A lot of behavioral economics kind of factoring into things like plan design and even, you know, investing and whatnot. We'll get into that, I think, with the, you know, with talking about managed accounts. Um, so you started as a wholesaler, you went into went to work for an advisory firm and then ultimately starting the Clarity Group, which 
you really built into certainly a boutique firm, but really well known within the industry, a really good reputation. What made you want to get from the side of of being a wholesaler, kind of supporting advisors to actually get into the advisory business yourself? It's a great question. I actually had an advisor ask me, it was an advisor I was wholesaling with or two, came to me and said, you know, could, could you wholesale multiple products? Could you sort of represent beyond just Transamerica, other you know, firms. And I said, no, that's not the model. He said, well, would you be interested maybe in coming on board and being our retirement arm? Again, they were a great asset manager, not more of a wealth manager, private wealth firm, but they didn't have a lot of 401k expertise. So, you know, they were using me for that. And so they offered me that opportunity. And I was at the point in my career where I had worked about five or six years as a wholesaler, great experience, but I really wanted to go front lines. I wanted to work directly with sponsors and participants. I wanted to objectively serve them, not just represent one product. You know, as you've known, I think about me is I do like to experience different sides of this business to really, to really understand it. And I felt like there was a lot of value to be added at that time as an advisor, because again, I was working with a lot of folks that didn't really know what they were doing. And I felt like if I could bring that expertise to the advisor space, could add a lot of value and would be a differentiator. And so that, that's really how I decided to make that jump. I like to affectionately describe you as having professional ADD. <laughs> Every, <laughs> you and my wife. <laughs> Every handful of years, it's on to kind of, and I, you know, I have, I've, I'm kind of wired in a similar way, which is why we've always gotten along so well, I think. So you went to do that. You kind of uh, went to work for this advisory firm, but then ultimately decided to strike off on your own and start the Clarity Group. What was the the impetus for you doing that? And then what are some of maybe the learnings? You know, again, this is is my goal for kind of this podcast is, you know, to kind of teach and educate. What were maybe some of the learnings that you experienced as an advisor? Uh, maybe the biggest lessons you learned and then, you know, maybe some of the mistakes that you made that you wish you would have potentially avoided. Yeah. So the reason I went out on my own, I think is probably similar to why a lot of folks in many industries kind of just want to venture out on their own is I I wanted to build something virtually from scratch to sort of see how I could do. And I definitely had a, I had a vision of the way clients and participants should be served. And I felt like I could best execute on that completely on my own clean slate Everything from designing, you know, the brand, the website, the services, the contracts, really everything, build it the way I felt like it really needed to be done, and then see what happens. And, and like you said, we were fortunate to have some success. Certainly it wasn't perfect. You know, I still needed a lot of experience. I mean, at that point, I was eight years into my working life. And so, you know, now I'm 21 years into my working life. So I feel like, you know, I would have loved to know then what I what I know now. But I, I think one of the things I learned was a lot of plan sponsors, they just have more on their plate than the 401k plan. You know, when you when you're when you work in this industry full time like you and I do, sometimes we make the assumption that this is maybe a bigger priority than it is. And we know being a responsible fiduciary is important, educating and preparing your employees is important. All those things are important, but that's one small segment of running a business, running a plumbing business or an accounting firm. And particularly when you're dealing with HR professionals who I have 
incredible admiration for because of the hats they have to wear and the workload they have to absorb is unbelievable. And so instead of going in and, you know, kind of brain dumping everything onto those folks, you really have to, I learned, you have to simplify it and take as much off of them as you can. I think you guys do an unbelievable job with that. Best, best in the business that I've seen. And, you know, I had to sort of pull back a little bit instead of believing that this was as important to every one of my clients. I had to say, this is important, but let me show you how I can actually make your life a lot easier without sacrificing any of the core responsibilities that you have. So that, that's something that took a while for me to learn. But as I did that, and then evolved our services to a point where it was pretty streamlined and we could confidently go into a prospective client and say, here's what we've done other places. Here's how we make your life easier. Here's how we cover all the bases. And here's kind of that package we can now bring to you. So I hope that makes sense. It does. It does. Yeah, it's funny. The retirement plan, fiduciary responsibility, you know, helping make good decisions for participants is critically important. But like you said, I think uh, the urgency and you owned a business and ran a business and I do as well. And, you know, it's easy. I've never met a business owner or a company who said, you know, the most important thing that we do as a company is run and have great retirement plan committees. If we don't do that, you know, just the you know, the wheels of commerce will grind to a halt within our company. And so I think that's an interesting perspective that you have in terms of covering all the bases, but also, you know, in, in an era when we're all having to do and HR and finance and, and everybody's having to kind of do more, the more that you can take off a plan sponsor's plate, the more that you can be kind of the go-to fixer, if you will. Mm -hmm. That's something I think that's really valuable to uh, a lot of plan sponsors see value in. So you know, you, you built this great, you know, practice that we were, you know, fortunate. I, I remember it was, I think in December of 2010, it was like 11 o'clock at night. I was sitting on the couch watching TV and I get a text from you. You say, do you want to buy my firm? And I say, give me a call. And, and uh, I know that you had been talking and because we had kind of discussed it just in terms of and, and had actually met a few times, you and myself. And then, you know, Pat Collins, the other co-founder of Greenspring, we had actually, we met outside of, I think, DC one time when you were up for a conference and had just kind of kicked around the ideas of, you know, would it make sense to kind of merge our firms at some point? And we decided not to, but you and I stayed in touch and we would have those kind of bi-weekly calls, I think, around kind of best practices to mirror our service models, if you will. But you you get to a point, you talk to a big advisory firm about potentially going to kind of work for them in a more kind of strategic role and decided not to do that. And it had kind of been put on hold for a bit. And then I get this text message from you and you call me and you say, hey, I have this chance to go work, you know, with Transamerica in this really kind of high level job. You want to buy my firm. I want, you know, I want to make sure that that my clients and, you know, my people wind up in a good place. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, we'd kind of hammered out a deal. And within a couple of months, I'd kind of met all your clients. I remember the first time we went, we did a little road show. I came in with you and, you know, with Stephanie Hunt. And you basically said, hey, this guy's buying my firm. I'm going to let him do all the talking. And I was like terrified to talk to all your clients down there, which ultimately became our clients. But that was an interesting evolution. You don't see many advisors that build the type of firm that you had with the level of success and then say, yeah, I'm going to go do something else. And so what, what, what attracted you to that role? And, you know, I'd love to find out, you know, what did you take from being an advisor that really helped you at, at Transamerica? Because you had a really big job there 
over the number of years that you you worked for them? It's a great question. And probably to no surprise, I get this one a lot because it was most most folks looked at me and said, what in the world are you doing? Because it's the opposite of what generally you see in the industry, which is you wholesale and you work for a provider or an asset manager, and then you get an opportunity to jump to the advisor side, which is a a wonderful segment of the business. I mean, I look at the success that you guys have had and built a really great firm and it's a, it's a great lifestyle. It's a noble cause. I mean, it, it's really an admirable part of the business and an attractive place to be. Like you, I was still fairly young and I felt like I still needed more experience in the industry. I had never worked as a senior executive at a big company. And I sort of felt like if, if I'm going to Am I going to have this firm for the next 30 years? And I don't know that if I have it for 30 years, I'm really going to understand this business and see it from all sides. And so also at Transamerica, I had a lot of great relationships. You know, uh, my mentor, who's still my mentor and close friend, Kent Callahan, been promoted and was really running the retirement business and beyond. So, and then a number of other friends there. And so the opportunity to kind of go back, work with people that I really cared about and felt like I could learn a lot from was really attractive, specific to Transamerica. I'm not sure I would have gone to any record keeper, but that was unique to that opportunity. And to, to work with Kent again was something I felt like I, I really wanted to do and, and needed to do. And so made that change. I would say the biggest thing I was able to kind of bring with me that, that I think Transamerica hoped would be valuable was the advisor experience. You know, as a record keeper, you're selling through advisors and very few, very few people at a record keeper actually have been an advisor. So, and at that time, Transamerica was not selling through specialists and RIAs and wanted to develop that channel and felt like because I had lived in that world, I could, I could bring that to the table. And so, you know, I was able to, you know, heading up business development to really you know, help grow that segment of their business, which as we know today, if you're a record keeper and you don't serve that population, it's, it's, it's tougher to grow because there are more and more specialists that have hit the market, developed a good service model. And so you, you really, again, as a record keeper, asset manager, you need to know that channel and, and be focused on it at some, some level. So I think that's, that's really what I was able to bring to the table. And then, like you said, my role expanded and changed over time. But that was maybe the core mission that I had when, uh, when I first went over there. Yeah, certainly that, that one of the things that has changed as well is kind of that rise of specialist advisor. In my book, The Fiduciary Formula, I kind of talk about that evolution and some of the trends that have kind of reshaped the retirement industry. And, you know, certainly you see it's just you know, as an advisor, you can't really compete if you dabble in the retirement space. It's just too complex. You know, ERISA is too hard to navigate. You know, it's it's hard to be what I would call kind of a recreational 401k advisor in this day and age. I think the challenge is you now you have a smaller number of specialist advisors that are all really, really good and say a lot of the same things. And so it's the competition is more fierce. There's probably fewer competitors, but it's more fierce. And a lot of a lot of companies or a lot of advisory firms kind of do and say really similar things. And so I think that's actually a good jumping off point, maybe to talk about, you know, after you left Transamerica, you know, how you wound up at Stadium, because, you know, with managed accounts and how that has that that kind of part of the market has evolved over the past several years. It's a lot different than it was three or five years ago. And, you know, you're seeing everything from 
record keepers to, you know, advisory firms to even asset managers in a lot of ways start to, to evaluate whether or not managed accounts make sense and, and how that could kind of be a, a, a strategic area to focus on. So let's talk a little bit about your move to Stadium. How did you get there? What attracted you to Stadium? And, and maybe even and maybe even kind of what Stadium does. Obviously, some people listening are going to know who Stadium is. Others may not. Before we, I, we get there, though, one question I had, if you had to do it again, would you have sold your firm? Would you have gotten out of the advisory business? Are you glad you did it? Man, I like to call this a spicy meatball question, Jeff. <laughs> I would say, yes, I'm glad I did it because I think beyond the experience, the relationships that I've been able to establish across you know, large broker dealers and other big advisory firms and record keepers and asset managers, I found has served me well, particularly as I've gotten into the role at Stadium to be able to reach out to friendly contacts about business development initiatives. I, I don't know that my my network necessarily would have been as expansive. I also don't know that I would have really understood as well as I, you know, I think I do now the record keeping business model from kind of behind the scenes. So the answer is yes, most of the time. Of course, there are times where I look back and say, especially when I look at the massive success that you guys have had and say, you know, you know, that that would have been great too. It would have been great to really build a firm or merge with, with you guys. I think that would have been fun. And I think today, you know, I would love having a great firm with strong revenue and strong clients. But it could go either way. And I, I certainly don't regret it. I'm kind of all about life experiences and business experiences. And if that means changing either either my role or evolving my role with an organization or, you know, going to a new other organization to get new experience, you know, that that's fulfilling to me and I enjoy that. So I would say 95% of the time, absolutely. I'm glad I did it. There's 5% of the time in a, in a quiet moment where I think that would have been pretty cool too, to grow a firm. So good question. Good question. And a question that my wife oftentimes <laughs> asks me. So she, I don't know if that was a plant question from her or not, but. It was. She she emailed me yesterday and uh, <laughs> made sure I, I, I asked that one. <laughs> okay. So you wind up, you had, you know, a great time at Transamerica. You wind up leaving Transamerica and not there long after went to, I think, work with Stadion in more of a consulting role at first, not a full-time role. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. So how'd you find Stadion? And and maybe why don't you start? What, what, what is Stadion for people who don't know that are listening? Yeah. So Stadion is a managed account provider. And maybe it would be helpful to kind of define what a managed account is. Managed account is essentially a service within a retirement plan, an institutional plan, 401k, 403b, so on, where there is a it's a professional money management service. So for participants that don't want to manage their own accounts or perhaps don't want to be in a target date fund, it's a service that creates a personalized portfolio for that participant based on different factors. So age is one of them, can be risk tolerance, can be location. You know, Every managed account provider does it a little bit differently, but Stadium's been doing that business for 25 years and is actually one of the the largest managed account providers in the industry. So probably not a brand that maybe a lot of plan sponsors or participants know, but a 
you know, I think a reasonably well-known brand inside of the industry. And again, has been a leader in the, in the managed account space for, for a number of years. So what led me to them was I'm based in Athens, Georgia. Stadium is headquartered four miles from my house. And I've known the CEO, Judd Doherty, and some other folks there for a long time. As you can imagine, living in a somewhat smaller college town and having a, a pretty large 401k kind of asset manager four miles away, you know each other. And so when I decided to leave Transamerica, I had been in conversations with Stadium. In fact, we had been in conversations for a number of years about, hey, wouldn't it be great to work together at some point? And I've always admired their business and admired their people. You know, we're about a, a 60 employee firm, really a wonderful culture. I love the small business aspect to it. Really, it's like going to work every day with a group of friends and growing a business. And I don't think, you know, you can ask for much more than that as far as, you know, kind of quality of your work life. And so I recognized all that. I also looked at the managed account space and thought, this makes sense to me. You know, you, you can get personalization in almost every aspect of your life, whether it's clothing or golf clubs or, you know, remodeling a kitchen, you know, whatever it may be, you can design and people expect it in on Amazon, Netflix, things like that. Yet inside of a retirement plan, things generally historically have not been personalized. And so I looked at that and thought, I see that as the future. And to have one of the top firms doing it, right down the street, that was really attractive to me. So yeah, I started out as a consultant. That was really to kind of test the waters a little bit on both sides to figure out, is this a fit? You know, And within two months, we realized it was a great fit. So that's when I came on you know, full-time. And so what you're, you're their chief business development officer? Is that the official title? That is the official title, yes. It sounds good, way more important a, than it is. That's a good title, Todd. That's a good title. <laughs> I said, as long as you put chief in, I don't care what you put right. after. Right. What does that role entail? What do you do? What's kind of your day-to-day look like? Yeah. So it's important to know first that when you're in the managed account business, everything is based on the integrations and availability you have with record-keeping partners. So we don't go direct to a participant and offer to manage his or her money. We first have to establish integration through a record-keeping platform. So companies like Securian and CUNA and Lincoln and Nationwide, firms that we have partnerships with, we start with sort of selling that record keeper on our service and why they should make it available. And then there's you know a 12 to 18 month period of time where we're being integrated on. It's a pretty complicated process. Very technology, very they're, they're techno- technology hurdles, if you will, to create yeah. that integration. Is that really where you're needing to kind of create the, the pipe? where you will, if data can kind of flow back and forth? Yeah, to manage hundreds of thousands of participant accounts at scale, you really need to have a technology bridge in place where the record keepers pass us participant data, and then we send kind of trade instructions, allocation instructions back to them. And that happens every single day. And that's actually just one component of the integration. So things like, how does the service appear on the website? What materials need to be provided? Disclosures? How is it displayed in proposals? And, and so there's a lot to it. I, I, I did not really understand before joining how much was involved in that. And that's actually, we'll probably touch on this later in the conversation, but 
that's one of the biggest barriers to entry in the managed account space. And I would argue one of the reasons it hasn't grown as rapidly as say the target date fund space. So, so my role is covers a few different areas. One is I oversee the team that manages the relationships with our 16 record keeping partners. So there's sort of a key account client management role there. So I have a, a group of folks that do that. And then product development falls in my world as well. So, you know, we're constantly, as you can imagine, trying to enhance the offering. And so that's just an ongoing effort that requires a fair amount of work and, and feedback from folks like you as far as what you want to see and, and, you know, what works and what doesn't. And then growth initiatives. So new record keeping partners, we, we always are interested in, in expanding that list and as you mentioned, opportunities with asset managers and large advisory firms, we have a separate sales team that goes out and meets with advisors kind of on the ground, like kind of the bottom up side of the business. My side is really more the top down strategic partnership and growth opportunities. That's where I spend all of my time. Yeah, so that's, I'm, I can't wait to dive into some of those questions and, and nuances. There's a lot more to the managed account space than, than it looks like kind of at first blush. And even you know, some of the the strategies and incentives or disincentives within the industry to be able to offer managed accounts. And so I think we can dive into that. I can't wait for that. Why would you say, obviously, you know, when you look, when you look at the, you know, really what, if you go back, it was the Pension Protection Act, right? That, that kind of started the arms race for these professionally managed options, right? Mm-hmm. And so this kind of idea of a QDIA or qualified default investment alternative combined with, really kind of the government's encouragement to do things like automatic enrollment and automatic escalation. But now you're getting people instead of kind of like we talked about part of the evolution, instead of, you know, people having to sign up on a voluntary basis for their plan, you know, more and more companies now are, auto, are automatically enrolling employees. So just that behavioral, that behavioral design, again, in the fiduciary formula, I've got, you know, chapters kind of dedicated to this and looking at the data, it's been, it's been, um, just the growth of automatic enrollment, automatic escalation across the industry has been significant. There's still quite a ways to go. But, you know, because of that, now you're getting people, I think, you know, in looking at at the end of, I want to say 2018, I think the average Vanguard automatic enrollment plan had a participation rate of about 90%. Their average voluntary enrollment plan had a participation rate of about 55%, right? So, Automatic enrollment really solving that kind of participation hurdle, not necessarily dealing with deferral rates. There's a lot of decisions that need to be made. But obviously, if you're automatically enrolling somebody, you have to, you know, they need to invest that money. And so with the Pension Protection Act, this idea of this QDIA and it needing to be a, you know, a target date fund, a balanced fund or a managed account. I think to your point, the the most predominant, at least so far, it's really target date funds that have captured the lion's share of asset flows because that's kind of the easiest way to offer a you know a QDIA as a target date fund. Not to mention a lot of the large ret- record keepers, whether it's a Vanguard or a Fidelity or a T. Rowe Price that, you know, have these beautiful distribution platforms, these 401k plans that are getting funded every pay period. It's a great way, quite frankly, to see if you're an asset manager and you have a record keeping platform, it's a great way to get flow into your funds. And obviously there's more scrutiny that we've seen over the past, call it decade around proprietary funds and whatnot. But 
without a doubt, you've seen this, this huge proliferation of professionally managed options. And again, I think Cerule by next year estimates that almost nine, 90 cents of every dollar that flows into a 401k plan is going to go into a QDIA. So you've had this kind of target date fund, this, this massive growth of target date funds, and really focused on a handful of providers, those names, you know, the vanguards, the, you know, the fidelities, the T. Rowe prices, American funds, I'd probably throw in there as well. So, you know, you, you, you've seen this spot and managed accounts, I would say, have probably financial engines, I would say was probably the most well-known managed account provider within the industry and, you know, merged with Edelman Financial, at least historically. Where, where are you seeing kind of, so, so I guess the first question, and again, long, long-winded setup here, why would a plan sponsor want to consider a managed account over a target date fund? Like what, what do you think should be the considerations for plan sponsors and what would, what would go into them making that managed account decision instead of that target date fund decision? I think it comes down to a couple of basic questions, one of which being, do they believe there's value in personalization? And do they believe that a characteristic beyond just one metric, which is age, which is how virtually every target date fund does it. They look at, you and I are, I think you're a few years older than me. Anyway, you look, you look a little bit younger. I think I'm one year older. One year, Which yeah. is not a few. Yeah, you look no older we're than con- we're, we're, con- we're probably in the same target date fund, Todd. <laughs> That's totally right. If we had a managed account, our allocation would be much different. So Totally uh, personalized. That's right. So when you start thinking about it in terms of should every 43-year-old, 44-year-old be allocated the exact same way, I think most, whether you're in our business or not in our business, would say, maybe not. You know, and I think about when you when you look at private wealth and how it's done over there, when you're and generally for maybe a more affluent investor, but even you know, with the robo advisors and things that has come down market. But if you had a you know client walk in and say, I've got five hundred thousand dollars, I'd like you to invest it for me. And you said, That sounds awesome. Tell me how old you are. And he said, I'm 44. And he said, thanks a lot. Come back tomorrow. I've got, I'll have a great allocation for you. That probably wouldn't fly, right? It wouldn't make sense. And that's how target date funds do it. I say that. I also believe target date funds have been incredibly valuable. I use them in every plan when I was an advisor. I think they have served a great purpose and I think they will continue. But I think looking at the evolution of these products and looking at kind of managed accounts as the next option on that continuum and being able to personalize a portfolio for someone, and I know we'll talk about this as well, but without necessarily requiring a lot of action and seeing some of the metrics around the benefits of personalization, especially in a market like what we've seen this year, where, you know, it's been shown if you create something that's the right fit for someone that's aligned with their risk tolerance, that's really custom built for them, the likelihood of them making a decision in a volatile market that would hurt them is, is much lower. And there, there's some really interesting stats around that. We've seen deferral rates potentially higher with managed accounts, retention rates, meaning... Why, so why... That, that's an interesting point around, you know, at the, at the end of the day, and I would totally agree with you. I think, you know, target date funds have hands down created better investment outcomes for yep. participants than the do-it-yourself. There's a, I, I cite a lot of the data actually in my book 
both books that I wrote, the Fixing the 401k as well, even going back, you know, 12 years ago, there was that data to show that. And like you said, a ton of money and effort and time has been spent over the past 20, 30 years trying to teach people to be better investors. But most people don't have a knowledge gap. They have a behavior gap. And so target date funds, without a doubt, have, I think, improved the overall investment experience for many, many participants. That being said, you know, you can't invest your way out of a savings deficit. A lot of times people think that, you know, your how your investments perform is the, the, the key driver in terms of your retirement outcomes. But the reality is, while it is important, it's really the savings rate. I mean, that is the, you know, that's kind of the magic number when it comes to driving successful outcomes and can actually take a lot of pressure off how you need to invest if you've got, you know, sufficient savings rates. And so it's interesting. How have you seen how can managed accounts actually, to your the, the comment you made, how can it uh, help drive up deferral rates? How can it be, help increase savings rates, whereas maybe a, a target date fund won't? Yeah. So I think what you see in managed accounts today is despite them being able to be set up in a way that doesn't require a lot of action, generally managed account investors do tend to be a little more engaged than a target date investor, particularly someone that's just been defaulted in. You know, what, what we've seen with target dates is someone gets defaulted in at three, four, five, six percent. I know we want that number as high as possible. They don't touch it. And with managed accounts, which today are not as commonly used as a QDIA. So we call it participant choice when it's not used that way. So if someone's opting in saying, you know what, I want someone else to manage my money for me. I recognize I can't do that but I'm going to engage and I'm going to look at this. And most managed accounts have sort of a flow to them where they address deferral rate. And they say, you know, if you were to defer more, this is potentially even the tweak to your allocation. You know, if someone's going to defer more, that could have an impact on maybe how they should be invested. So I think today, most managed account participants are a little bit older. They have more assets. They're getting closer to retirement. Their needs are a little more complex. They're thinking more in terms of, uh-oh, I better save more to hit my goal. So I think as things evolve and managed accounts become used more as a QDIA where people don't touch it, it'd be interesting to see what happens, the impact on that deferral percentage. It may fall more in line with your typical defaulted person, regardless of what they're put into, where they're just kind of stepping back and not doing anything. But I think that's why you, you've seen that. And then there's also studies that show managed account investors get a better return. And my theory on that, which is just a theory, is it's not about the quality of the investments. You know, there's a lot of great target date funds out there that do a good job managing allocations and selection of underlying investments. It's more about kind of back to your point, it's the behavioral impact. There, there are statistics that show people stay in a managed account longer than they stay in a target date fund. If you look out three, five, 10 years, there's much greater retention in a managed account than you'd see on a target date fund. So I think there is a mentality associated with a managed account that a lot of participants have, which is even when the market's going crazy up or down, I'm kind of being taken care of. Therefore, their tendency to go in, move to cash at a bad time or make, make moves that wouldn't benefit them, that tendency is much less in a managed account, which manifests itself typically in a little bit of a better return. So that, that's something so, I think. 
Uh, so so that, that's an interesting, you, you see that the data that you're talking about, you see that relative to a target date fund, because I could totally see that relative to uh, some individual investor and they're coming up with their own allocation. But you, you the data you're referencing even shows, call it stick to it rates, even being yeah. higher with a managed account, even than with a, with a target date fund, which because it's professionally managed and it's diversified and the kind of the right. ups and downs tend to be less than a do-it-yourself or who tends to invest in much more on the extremes, either way too risky or, you know, way too conservative. But, but right. that data has suggested is that managed account strategies are stickier in terms of people staying the course than even target date funds. Yeah. And I think that is because generally with a managed account, it's sort of an all or nothing approach. And it's it's almost a separate experience through a participant website. So participants going through the the process on the site and do you want your money managed for you? Yes, it ports them over to that managed account experience, which again is an all or nothing. You know, we operate as what's called a participant level 338. So uh, as you know, an investment manager that takes discretion versus just advising. And so we require a full investment in the managed account. Right. Whereas a target date fund is, is a list on a, on, or is part of a list, right? So your average participant probably doesn't even really know what that is exactly. And so they're in four of them or they hit a button and they move from that to the small cap growth fund. It's very easy to almost misuse a target date fund. It's just a transaction. And I think that's one of the main reasons you, you see kind of a different way that managed accounts are used relative to to a target date fund. That's a really good point I hadn't thought about. You know, we, we, we find that, I mean, we, even at our firm, I would say relative to the industry, the participants in our client plans use target date funds at a much, much higher level than kind of industry average. And part of that is, you know, we've been successful. We, we're big believers in, you know, target date fund re-enrollments. We've got really good track record as far as doing that, not just at conversion when it's easy, but more of at an existing record keeper. And, you know, we find that the, you know, the behavioral design really works and the opt-out rates tend to be low. And so that being said, you know, it goes back to the legacy of 15, 20, 30 years ago. And, you know, I think we've probably done a good job of hammering it into people that you should be diversified when you invest. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. But you still, and we find it still that there's a lot of participants who misuse target date funds. You know, it's really meant to be put all of your contributions and, you know, all of your current assets in the plan in one target date fund. But we find it still that you get participants who, hey, I'm going to hold, you know, I need to be diversified. And they think of diversification less about what's under the hood and more, how many funds do I have? And so, okay, you know, it's funny. They're, they're, I've seen it at times. Participants will have a, you know, half their money in a 2020 target date fund and half their money in a 2030 target date fund. And when you look at the under alloc lying allocation, it's literally, they could have put all their money in a 2025 fund and essentially <laughs> accomplish the same thing. So this mm -hmm. idea of these kind of unintended consequences. So that's an interesting point. And I think a good one is that when people don't look below the, below under the hood, they may actually be taking on more or less risk than is intended with the target date fund. Whereas the managed account, because it's an all or nothing, nothing proposition, you really can kind of control you know, the allocation under the hood much more effectively. So that's actually a really interesting point. And you can also, Josh, control the underlying holdings more so than in most right. target date funds. I mean, there's right. there's custom target date funds generally in the larger market, things like that. But I think back to kind of as a plan sponsor, why consider one? 
you know, if you work with great advisors like like you guys who have a very strong, robust investment analysis process, whether whether you like passive or active or whatever it may be, to be able to take those your best thinking and actually put them into a professionally managed solution at a reasonable price versus having to kind of just defer to the asset manager to pick those, which generally are proprietary in a lot of cases. Right. You know, I think that's seen as a as a benefit and outside of a managed account in a small market, it's hard to do that. There's models, you know, like an aggressive model, but those are typically static. They don't they're not gonna glide path. So I, I think that that's what we're seeing out there with advisors is they they like that idea and this managed accounts is a way they can bring that down to even a micro plan, you know. So that, that's one other not only is it the allocation, but it's the it's the holdings as well. Yeah, you know, in, in, that's an interesting point too. Just in terms of most plans, certainly if you're working with a specialist advisor, you have an investment policy statement, you've got some due diligence process, whatever that looks like in terms of monitoring all the individual funds. You know, a fund underperforms for whatever reason, you put it on watch for a period of time, you document, you know, why it's on watch. You can, you know, replace it if you want if it underperforms, and you've got that flexibility. Whereas you know, with a target date fund, it's not like you can go to T. Rowe Price and say, hey, you know, your emerging markets fund, we don't think is the right fund. Like, we want you to replace that. They're going to tell, you know, me to go pound sand. Right. Um, whereas I think that's the point that you're making is I would imagine, and I could be wrong, but do you typically find that most um, within the the managed accounts, they're using the underlying core funds in the fund lineup. So, you know, if in that case, there's an emerging markets allocation within the managed account and the individual fund making up that asset class underperforms, you can take it out of the plan, i.e. you can also take it out of the managed account and you can, you know, replace it to help from a fiduciary perspective, follow a, you know, a more consistent process, not just with the the funds that are made available, but how they're used in these in these managed accounts, unlike what you can do with a target date fund where when you're kind of stuck with whatever the the due diligence decisions are relative to the target date fund provider. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you can you can populate a managed account in different ways. The most common way to do it is is the way you laid it out. So, advisor selects a fund menu and then the managed account provider or potentially the advisor then takes a subset of that menu to include in the managed account. That said, there are other ways to do it. We have some advisory firms that have built their own CITs, collective investment trusts, so they want to use them in the managed account, but they don't want to make them a core menu option. Or some advisors that have some esoteric funds that they feel are make sense in their managed solution, but they don't want to put them on, on the menu and then have someone put 100% of their, their money into it. They think there's risk there. So we call that carving out some funds. Not every record keeper can do that. There's some operational work there, but many can. And so it can be done in different ways. But the way you said it is probably you know, 85, 90% of managed accounts. That's the way it's done. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens kind of moving forward with some of these more esoteric. Obviously, recently, a lot of noise being made about you know private equity. And I'm personally still not sure that's a great idea for participants. If you work for a private equity firm, it's probably awesome. You know, the access right. to potential dollars is absolutely incredible, but it will take time to see whether or not, you know, how, how those types of solutions get implemented into, into plans. I suspect that 
you know, managed accounts will probably be an area where you see that if you can certainly carve out, you know, where you may not make a, you know, whatever. One, they just, I think the the industry needs to figure out like how even private equity can fit in with liquidity issues and lockups and lack of transparency and fees, like how that even fits into to defined contribution plans, I think is is going to remain to be seen. But I would imagine that managed accounts is probably an area where, you know, you could see private equity showing up, especially if you don't have to make it part of the core fund lineup. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's a good example. And there are others where, you know, participants, when it's on a lineup, they have full discretion of how they want to invest their money and 90 plus percent don't necessarily understand, kind of back to your point about target date funds, they, they don't understand each investment option and the, and the inherent risk associated with them. And so I think plan sponsors have to, as they work with their advisors, have to be thoughtful about that too. And if you're going to include something like that on a menu, how does that fit into your investment policy statement? And are you comfortable doing that? But again, if an advisor believes that it's important to have a selection and monitoring process for their fund lineup, which we know from a fiduciary perspective, that's core, it's critical. Then our contention is that that thinking should also apply to the professionally managed solution as opposed to sort of just deferring. The exception being, I think when you get into index funds and passive funds, which I know that, that Greenspring likes a lot. If you're, if you're a firm that says, really what we want is we want low cost options that track an index, you know, in that sense, a target date fund that only invests in those types of, that, that, that to me is perfectly fine. I think as you get into target date funds that are more actively managed, where you are fully deferring to that asset manager to make all those decisions, that's where there's an interesting conversation to be had around instead of that, perhaps using a professionally managed account to take your best thinking, put it into something like that may Maybe a really good dialogue to have with a with a plan sponsor. Yeah. How are you finding advisors? And I, I want to jump back in a minute to talk about personalization. But you you know you're mentioning obviously advisors are one of, you know you guys can go kind of direct to plan sponsors through a record keeper relationship, right? Where kind of Stadium is managing overall kind of the allocations and whatnot. And then you also effectively are kind of like a managed accounts technology provider, if you will, to advisors who want to kind of step into that role of, hey, we want to be able to determine the allocations and whatnot and really leverage your infrastructure, your technology to kind of enable, correct? How are you finding advisors? And it sounds like kind of the larger end of the market, you start are starting to see advisors utilize managed accounts. I assume part of that may be just to try to differentiate. Part of that could be to provide more choice. Part of that could be a additional revenue streams. I mean, like we, we've talked about before and that, that what you typically see is best practices and trends. They don't start in the large market or the small market and go up market. They start in the large market. And then over time, they kind of trend down. That's why you see automatic enrollment, for instance, you know, in large plans is used about three to one over small plans. Automatic escalations used about five to one in large plans over small plans. The smaller end of the market, which quite frankly, probably makes up 90% of the market, that kind of under $10 million plan space, tends to be more of a laggard in adopting trends and best practices. But you're starting to see these kind of larger advisory firms. There's obviously a lot of M&A in the industry in creating kind of these teams and mega teams and these large firms. That's where it sounds like you're seeing maybe the most activity. 
How are advisors, I guess, one, why do you think they're doing, why do you think they're they're kind of starting to play in this managed account space? And then how do you manage some of the potential conflicts of interest and prohibited transactions? And I think that's good from the perspective of if you're an advisor thinking about getting into the managed account space, but also for plan sponsors, like what should they know and be aware of just in terms of potential conflicts and, and prohibited transactions? If they have an advisor, like how can they be better consumers of professionally managed options if an advisor is bringing kind of this managed account story to them, if that makes sense? It does. It's a good question. And maybe I'll start by clarifying kind of the spectrum of services that that we offer in terms of the role an advisor can play, right? So Historically, Stadium has offered what I call a bundled managed account, right? Where we we kind of do all the services associated with the managed account. We are the, the sole participant 338. And over time, we've we've almost unbundled that to create more of a modular solution where we can say, hey, advisor, if you want to play a role, we can kind of unwrap the offering and we can step out of whatever role that you want to play. That's really been a trend over the past two years, probably, you know, kind of a new, a new evolution of managed accounts. And so we only sell through advisors, but because we have those different types of solutions, we can serve the non-specialist that just wants us to do everything all the way through your larger specialized firms that want to play a role. So that's really the way we kind of position our flexibility as a differentiator to say, regardless of the kind of advisor you are, we can provide those different options. And so this, this kind of enabler concept is uh, where I'm spending a lot of my time working with these larger firms that have already, in many cases, developed their own managed account. But that's a brand new industry that or kind of niche in our industry that's starting to expand. And I would say we're one of two, maybe three managed account providers that can accommodate that, which is generally called advisor managed accounts or AMA. And so there's kind of three roles, simplistically, that, that need to be filled inside of a managed account. One is who's picking the investments that are offered. Two would be who's building kind of those core component allocations to then be used in the third step, which is who's actually building the participant allocations. Who's, who's saying, Josh, it's so you're 44, you're, you, know, you live in, in Maryland. Who's taking that and creating that customization? What we're finding it is almost every one of these large firms, they certainly want to play that first role. They want to pick the underlying investments. Typically, they also want to play the second role, which is what is the core you know, equity allocation, fixed income, so on. Rarely, if ever, do they want to play the third role. That's really a role that, that we today play in every circumstance where they will look at our allocation methodology. We have you know, CFAs on staff. We have robust documentation on how we build those allocations. And your, your better advisory firms want to do a deep dive on how we do that, which is an important fiduciary question. You know, if, you're gonna, if I'm going to design an allocation for you as a, as a planned fiduciary, whether it's the advisor and or the sponsor, you really need to know how that's happening, right? And so... So that's kind of how it plays out as far as why advisors are doing it. You kind of mentioned it. I think number one is they believe that personalization makes sense and is likely kind of the future. And they're starting to look at target date funds and say, is that the best we can do for participants? It's good. And it has been great. 
and to your point earlier, people are better off today than they otherwise probably would have been if that vehicle didn't exist. And glide pathing, getting more conservative over time, that makes sense. But is there a better way? And I think your, your bigger firms have really looked at this hard and said, we do think that's a better way. But they're also trying to differentiate themselves. I mean, and you kind of touched on this. And, and you know, when I back when I was an advisor and, and you were an advisor early on, being a fiduciary and having the documentation and the fiduciary vault and all the great things that you do, that was different. I mean, we were going in and picking off plans left and right from kind of brokers or, you know, that they weren't a fiduciary. They didn't even have an investment policy statement. I mean, that, that was very, as you know, very common. Maybe it is today, but now you've got a lot of specialists that have emerged and that story frankly, is not that different, right? Between specialists and you, it's, you mentioned it's, ta- it's table stakes. I mean, you, you don't, have you it. don't, you don't differentiate on the governance side anymore. You gotta have it. Plan sponsors should expect that as almost the minimum, right? So advisors are looking at that saying, all right, what else can I do to differentiate them? I mean, you guys have built all sorts of tools and services that make you very different and, and, and great firm. There are others that are looking at it saying, we think we need a managed account service to kind of add to our menu. To, to, we believe that makes sense. We don't want to just let a third party be that service. We want that to become part of what we do. And that's where that's come from. But I think we'd be lying to ourselves if we didn't also look at the revenue piece of it. There are advisors that, and I think it's perfectly fine if you navigate the conflicts of interest piece that, that you know, I'll mention, but their revenue has been squeezed oftentimes, much like record keepers revenue has been squeezed over time. So I think because of that competition you mentioned, you're seeing, if not a backup in terms of fees, sometimes you're certainly seeing a flat line yeah. of advisory fees, which I think is, is good for the consumer, definitely, but it then makes, it, cre- it can create a challenge for that advisory firm. And so they're looking at it saying, this is another service. And for that service, we deserve to be paid for that. And I think that's fine. You know, it's interesting when you start to see some of that fee compression. And I think generally speaking, you know, advisors don't try to be kind of the lower cost. The low, It's hard to compete with the low cost provider. And, and, you know, if I've learned anything, I actually, I think wrote this precise sentence in the fiduciary formula is like, you get what you pay for in the retirement industry. You know, that doesn't mean you should overpay, but, you know, the, the cheapest is rarely the best because it's cheap for a reason. Yeah. You know, ERISA doesn't require the, the cheapest, but fees do have to be reasonable. But, you know, I think it's interesting with 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 advisors and quite frankly, probably record keepers as well, but especially with advisors, it's less about like, hey, let's try to reduce our fees. And it's more like, let's maintain our fee levels. But the way we're going to do that is we're going to value add up, right? We're going to do more to try to maintain kind of the level of fees. Yeah. Um, and so that, that might be kind of what you're alluding to in some ways is, Hey, now we, you know, we're used to getting X fee for, you know, you know, X amount of revenue and X amount of profit and we're getting pressure there. So in order to kind of justify that, let's value add up and let's add more kind of services or capabilities. You know, the reality is to do that, you have to spend more. So it, it, it still does tend to put kind of pressure on maybe profit margins. But I think that's probably what you're alluding to in some ways is this constant push. It's hard to, with the focus on fees, you know, it's hard to try to significantly increase your fees, but we're being asked to do more. And, and 
you know, to compete and to differentiate. So I think that's a good, I think that's a good, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Um, And there's, there's certain services, Josh, where I think as an advisor, it may not, it takes some development work, but it may not on an ongoing basis, create a huge expense for you guys to, you know, so, so, and, and again, you know, I think that, you know, Greenspring has built sort of this platform and you're adding to it, but you're doing it in a way that allows you to offer it, I think, efficiently in a lot of cases to, to your clients. So that's something as a business owner, of course, you're going to think about. Managed accounts can fall a little bit beyond that, I think, where there is additional liability when you're taking a participant level 338 discretionary role. And oftentimes, there is a, a lot of work up front. I mean, some of the big firms where we've built these solutions, it's a six, nine-month build that does take a lot of effort. So most of them... I would say 99% of them are monetizing the managed account in one way or the other. So, and we can talk about how they're doing that if that if now's the time to do that, you know, and how how they're they're navigating a prohibited transaction or a conflict, which because we know, and when I was an advisor, it was you didn't have any product, right? You were charging for advice, and it was kind of a no-no to step into the product world at all. Right. And that has changed. And more advisors are beginning to offer different variations of asset management products, which they believe are valuable, are an additional revenue stream, but they're doing it in a way that is very transparent and kind of passes your your fiduciary screen or your your ability. They're they're doing it in a way that uh, fits with their business model, which is still being objective and still being transparent. It's just they now offer an additional service that that a plan sponsor participants can pay for. Yeah. And I mean, I think that brings up a good point is obviously there are prohibited transactions and there's exemptions that you can get around with being able to kind of increase your compensation. But, you know, I think the big, maybe the most basic one though is, you know, when you're a fiduciary advisor at the plan level and monitoring a, you know, a fund lineup, whether you're a 321 or a 338 where you have discretion and all of the funds aren't affiliated with your firm, like I can objectively evaluate a Vanguard target date fund or a Fidelity target date fund or, and whether or not, you know, that fund, I don't have a dog in the fight, right? right? On whether or not that, that fund, you know, is in the plan or that target date series is in the plan. But when I'm now responsible for, you know, I'm giving plan level advice on the investments that are made available. And now I'm also essentially delivering that kind of asset allocation service, if you will, or I have you know, I, I, I lose my objectivity. Like how can I, when I'm at my plan level kind of advisor hack, can I objectively say, am I going to say like, it's a cop who it's a cop going to give himself or herself a speeding ticket. You know, am I going to basically say, man, you know, your managed account provider really stinks. Like we need to fire them. That obviously is kind of a conflict from that perspective. Which then, you know, who is going to make that determination? Does that then fall back on the plan sponsor? And our plan sponsor is really equipped to be able to kind of make that determination. So I would be interested just, I do want to get to the personalization capabilities, but I would be interested, how do you see advisors kind of managing that conflict when they get into the managed account space? Yeah. I mean, this is a really important question and it's brand new, but what we're seeing, there are a couple of different ways that they're doing it. One is they are charging a higher plan level fee. Right. So they're saying we've charged $30,000 for plan consulting, whatever the number is. And we now offer this managed account service. And if you want it, we're going to charge 40,000, something like that, or maybe basis points across the plan assets, whatever it happens to be. 
And uh, that way, they're not tied to the assets that flow into the managed account. They're, it's just an added service that the plan sponsor has to make a decision. Do I see value in this? And if so, I'm willing to pay my advisor more to provide that service. So that's a very clean... But there's no like managed account. There's no additional fee for the managed account per se, because it's essentially the delivering the managed account service, advisory service, the AMA at cost. But it's really because it's built in as kind of a higher plan level consulting fee. Exactly. In that model, that's how it works. Now, of course, there'd be your managed account fees. Right, that, right, right. But, but, but the advisor, the advisor is in double dipping. They're basically saying we're going to charge you effectively zero to offer the, you know, at the there's no additional fee kind of baked into the managed account per se for the advisor right. because right. We're, we're getting paid at the plan level through our consulting engagement. Yep. Yep. So there are firms doing it that way. Another way to do it is to actually charge an additional fee on the managed account. The way they're doing that is it's a separate service beyond their plan consulting fee. They're educating only on it, which again, that's a fine line. I think you have to be careful with that. That's very hard with firms that have, you know, 3,000 advisors, but right. a firm got 30 and it's tightly controlled under their RIA. But so some are saying, and this has been sort of signed off on by the ERISA legal community in some cases, we have an educationally approach. The advisors going to the plan sponsor and saying, we offer this service. Here are the fees. Here's how much we get paid. Here's how it works. Here's all the documentation, you know, that, that to, to support it for you to evaluate and plan sponsor through a separate contractual arrangement can hire that advisor for that separate service. We actually see this with just advice. You know, there's some firms that have a plan model and then, oh, by the way, we can provide advice to your employees and that's a separate fee. So we're seeing it structured that way. Now, to your point, though, it does require that plan sponsor to be able to sort of kick the tires on that, that solution. So part of it is we actually have tools that we've built for plan sponsors that say, here's how to kick the tires on a managed account. So an advisor has to decide what are they comfortable doing? That is an okay way to do it. And then if they do it, the education model, are they providing the tools that their client needs to evaluate that service? And it's sort of similar to if, an advisor says, hey, you're supposed to kick the tires on me, on my plan consulting. Plan sponsor says, I don't know how to do that. And the advisor may say, well, here's some data or here's some, it's coming from the advisor. So, you know, they have to be mindful of that. But, but so, so that's the way it's done. It's done today. And, and they're, they're, again, they're both okay. And they're both being received well by the market. Okay. Okay. One of the things you 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 talked about and going back to with managed accounts, I, I think one of my probably personal criticisms over the years, and then again, this is going back a number of years, you see, you know, the reality is whatever is the default is going to get the flow. So, you know, uh, financial engines back in the day when was kind of in some ways, you know, one of the, I think there was maybe there was guided choice. There were a couple of Mesero might have had, or there were a couple of other providers, I think, out there back in the day. Right. But but financial engines was the one who really seemed to, you know, similar to what you're trying to do at Stadium, right? It had created the relationships with the large record keepers. And when managed accounts were simply kind of like a participant choice add-on, 
I saw very little utilization uptick, probably on the order of like 1% of planned assets or less where somebody had to kind of choose to have a managed account and then pay for it. Obviously, I think if you probably looked at, at financial engines, which gathered a tremendous amount of assets, it was probably in large part due to the fact of the, the times when they were the actual QDIA instead of a target date fund, right? And that's where they were kind of capturing all the assets. One of my, I guess, criticisms over time has been with a lot of these managed accounts is it feels like at times that they're glorified target date funds that may cost mm-hmm. 60, 70, 80 basis points, but effectively because they don't have much in the way of personalization, they don't have additional data points, um, mainly because at least the way that I've seen it in the past, and I think you guys might do it a little bit differently, um, and maybe other managed account providers have have, have evolved as well, but in, back in the day, to really make it personalized, a participant would have to go in and they'd have to enter in all these additional data points themselves. And the reality is, you know, people are just disengaged and so they wouldn't do it. And they were paying, you know, six, seven, eight times what they could pay for kind of an index fund to essentially do the same thing. So what are your thoughts as far as that goes? And, you know, what what are the 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 ways to kind of, I'm assuming, like, I think you guys have maybe like your own personalization engine. How does that work? What are the data points that you're looking at? And where do you get that data? Do you need participants to go in and kind of engage with the plan to do it themselves? Or is there a way that you can gather a lot of that data without them having to kind of be involved in the process and then build those allocations based on those those data points. The more data, right, the, the, the more bespoke, the more precise these allocations probably can become and really achieve true personalization and not just kind yeah. of a an off-the-shelf, maybe slightly more personalized target date fund, but not, you know, fulfilling their promise or being worth what's being paid for them. Yeah, no, and I... I... I tend to agree. You know, if if a managed account is simply going to be age only without any sort of overlay of risk tolerance or other things, I think it's it's a fair question to say is that is that worth a higher fee relative to the target date fund? It, you know, there should be a conversation around that. This goes back to kind of the evolution, or you just have a managed model portfolio in that, right? That that case. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, you're touching on I think two two reasons that managed accounts have been have not grown like target date funds perhaps and one is the the level of fees you know that to me has been they they've probably been too high over the years and they have come down and then lack of engagement so if you're a plan sponsor and you say i like the idea of managed accounts i'm going to use it on an opt-in or participant choice basis and five percent of their people or their participants use it then you have this question, you know, should we be offering this thing if no one's using it? And it's not that people don't like the idea, it's that people aren't logging into their accounts and going through the process, understandably so. So I think the ways that, that we've gotten around that is through this, what we call our personalized QDIA approach, which I look at as kind of auto customization, and it's all based on data, right? So I think record keepers have gotten better at capturing important data to then be used to create these these portfolios. So clearly age location is kind of interesting because we think about tax, future tax impacts that someone would have on the distribution side. We are probably using- cost of living as well, right? If it, if you live somewhere yeah, right. where cost of living, you might wind up having, I mean, I'm sure wages would be reflected in that, but you might have, you know, more disposable income, more money that you can save. Yeah. Deferral rate, clearly, right? You know, balance. 
things like gender are kind of interesting as well. You know, that, that females generally live a little bit longer and a female in California is likely to live longer than a male in West Virginia. That's what this, that's what the stats show. And so I think there's a lot of interesting work happening in taking different data points, building that into your methodology to create an allocation. I, I believe there's value there. And so that data isn't always easy to get. Again, record keepers have gotten better about it. We go to all of our partners and we try to get as much data as we possibly can get. You can get some of it directly from the plan sponsor. You know, there's, there's potentially payroll, a payroll angle there as well. So I think there's going to be more innovation as it relates to additional data. And then again, more innovation as it relates to how you use that data to create portfolios. And then you as advisors and your clients then have to understand how all that works and, and sign off on it. And maybe once a year in a committee meeting, you say, okay, let's regroup on the managed account. Let's see what changes have been made, if any. Let's make sure this is still still makes sense. So, And then the fee side too, as I mentioned, fees, fees have, have dropped. In some cases, our fees have certainly gone down over the years. What, is, which, what are the economics of kind of offering managed accounts? Like what, is, what does that look like? ranges is that yeah 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 so industry-wide you're looking at you know an average managed account fee is around 40 basis points in addition to fund expenses that's kind of your average in the industry so that would be a record keeper getting paid that would be an advisor getting paid that would be no that's generally just the managed account provider on average today so the the retirement leadership forum which is you know kind of an industry Kind of think tank research group like a Cerulli, they did an interesting study. I was not invited to that forum. They, my invitation must have got. We moved offices that. last August. Maybe that got sent to the wrong address. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll dig into that. I'll follow <laughs> up. But that's where that number came from. So they did a managed account specific study, okay. and and so, so so industry wide, that's about the average, which which I view is a little on the higher end, but the. That's going down. Their speculation is that the managed account fees will drop more to around an average of 20 basis points. Plus fund expenses. That's right. So in, in our world, we start at 10 basis points when an advisor wants to play a role. And then some of our legacy products where we're doing everything uh, goes up to 30 or 35 basis points. Okay. So, but at ten, so if we're at 10 basis points, for example, and an advisor wants to play a role, depending on how that advisor monetizes it, right? Let's say it's inside the managed account and they put on another 10 and then maybe you have a passive lineup, you know, so maybe that's at eight or just call it 10 and you're at 30 basis points for a fully customized managed account solution. So my sort of, I think our vision at Stadium is auto personalization using as much data as we possibly can gather. And that's that you're gathering, that auto-personalization, kind of the auto in there is that a participant's not involved, not, right. not required to go in and input information. Obviously, if they do, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be hyper-personalized, right? But, right? but you still have are gathering enough data in order to automatically, without them having to kind of touch it. Yeah, exactly. So if you combine that auto personalization, right, with a reasonable fee, to so call it that 30 all in, you know, not, not including record keeper, but they would pay that anyway. So, if it, right. you know, so just call it the 30. 
I think that's potentially the future. And I think that is something that is worthy of a dialogue if I'm a plan sponsor and an advisor. So you know what? Fees have gone down. The engagement issue has been addressed at some level through this auto personalization. Let's have a conversation about this and let's see if it makes sense. The other big point there, Josh, I would say though, is availability can be a little bit of a challenge because right now... What what do you mean by availability? Availability of data in the personalization no, managed Process. account solutions. Mm, okay. So if you, you know, as an advisor and you've got a plan with XYZ record keeper, that record keeper probably either does, they may not offer a managed account at all, or they may have one and it may be their own. Right. Or they may in some cases have three or four, which is, which is somewhat rare. So as you know, in an open or they may have target date funds that compete. That compete. That's really where they want you to go. That's and, where they want you to go. Yeah. And you know, I mean, you know, open architecture and the investment side is is great because you can cast a wide net and then from there, pick the investments that you want. Managed accounts are not today in an open architecture format. The Retirement Leadership Forum also speculates that that will be the case down the road where that means you're working with one of your clients and they say, okay, there, there are five managed accounts available through the record keeper we're using. Let's vet the differences. Let's make a decision. Do managed accounts make sense? If so, let's look at the options. But our industry is not there yet. And the reason it's not there yet is back to that barrier to entry of integration. If you're a record keeper, do you want to spend 18 months times five integrating five managed? So unless there's some sort of better middleware created or something that makes it more of a plug and play model, you're going to probably for now have to live with the fact that there may only be one or two options. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be offered, but you're really more kicking the tires on that versus comparing it to a whole menu of solutions it, out there. Got it. Got it. So there's there's not too many, not many dates to the prom right now to choose from effectively. Yeah. And and again, it doesn't mean that the one date isn't a great date. <laughs> it just means that I had a hard time getting a date at all. So just having one in my book is a, is a, is a good thing. Well, we're, uh, we're actually recording video on this and I know why. <laughs> that's why, yeah. A, a face for podcasts. That's what I've been told. Um, People tell me I have a great face for radio. Yeah, you I do. So I, I, think, I think that there is value in as an advisor saying, what does the managed account landscape look like? And even though we may not have everyone available, is the one that we have available competitive relative to what's out there? You just generally can't do that on that record-keeping platform, which again is is okay if you like the one that's there and it makes sense. So that, that is interesting too. And so it sounds like what could evolve over time as well as in the same way that an advisor, they may say, hey, I don't want to play an active role in the managed account solution in the same way that I don't want to, you know, create a record keeping platform internally. But once there's more choice out there, which is really a technology enablement issue, probably in some ways, but once there's more choice, hey, I'm not going to play a role actively in the managed account solution, but I will help you, you know, Mrs. Plan Sponsor, figure out which of the however many are available are the best one and most prudent for you to offer to your people based on same way that if we evaluated, you know, five different record keepers from that perspective, but there's just not enough choice right now. And that's really some of those barriers. It sounds like technology wise. And 
you know, how open, I mean, how hard is it to get, obviously there's time and cost. How hard is it to get these kind of record keeper relationships in place? Because I do know, you know, there's a huge battle around data right now around cybersecurity. There was a lawsuit in April that was filed against uh, a light solutions and shoot, I'm forgetting the name of the plan sponsor, a big plan sponsor and was around, you know, a, a participant alleged that they had like $245,000 stolen from their account because someone hacked their account. And so mm-hmm. you see that element of cyber. And then you also see, and, and, you know, Jerry Schlichter is, is starting to kind of advance the narrative. And I think this is the next battleground in ERISA litigation is whether or not data is a plan asset and, you know, record keepers, right. That are trying to, and, and, and other service providers, you know, is it a, is it legal, if you will, to be able to use participant data to try to market other services and whatnot? And so at least what we've seen is security protocols focused on cyber. A lot of these record keepers are getting very kind of testy and locked down around providing kind of access to their data. They're guarding it very, very closely. Are you finding that as you're trying to kind of build these partnerships? And is that a challenge? Is that one of the barriers you think is just kind of the evolving cyber and you know, data as a plan asset issues that are emerging or not so much? Well, we are, when we engage with a new record keeper, they kick the tires heavily on our data protection protocols and our security protocols, which, you know, again, we've, we've built all the technology is all in-house. So we don't outsource any of that. And we've done that for 20 plus years. So we've got significant procedures, protocols in place to check all those boxes. But I would say the questions and requirements that we're getting and being asked to, to do, that's, that's grown big time, understandably so. And so, and we also, we have a plan sponsor agreement and a participant agreement. So when we're, in, when we're hired as a managed account provider, there is an acknowledgement of the data and the dynamic that is in place between us and the record keeper and but there's no doubt that is a topic that we're all having to focus on. And anytime you're dealing with with data like that, you know, that needs to be addressed. So so we're seeing that. I, I would say the kind of back to the menu of options that we talked about, the concept of us being an enabler is is really, to me, really exciting. And we're spending a lot of time there where, as you mentioned earlier, there are many firms that want to have a managed account solution. And whether they be advisory firms, asset managers, so on, and they don't have that integration, they don't have the piping, they don't have that in place. So to build it, they not only have to have the in-house expertise, which most don't have, or they have to partner with the firm and hire them to do that. But record keepers don't want to do it, right? Because they back to they don't want to spend 18 months and all this time doing it. So when they look at us, they say, wait, you have 16 record keeping partnerships. Could we use you for that service, either for existing or could you build it for a new record keeper that wants to add our product? The answer is absolutely. And it's almost a little bit of a new business model for us that I think is very exciting. That type of service, I think, will ultimately lead to a broader menu. So if we're the piping, but we've got four other firms that are leveraging that, that has then created more choice, which which I think from Stadium's perspective strategically, that's going to be a big area of growth for us where that's kind of our technology arm right. that I think will 
will serve the market really well because it will provide additional choice for right. advisors you that want to do that comparison and benchmarking. And be able to, you know, scale from that, that, you know, yeah. that, it's kind of like the, you know, back in the, you know, eighties and nineties, maybe like the Intel inside. Right. Right. Model, you know, That's exactly right. Intel would create the processor that would go in every manufacturer's, you know, computer and get scale and distribution from yeah. that perspective, instead of building their own PC that was only an Intel PC with their own processor. That's in fact, that's exactly how we refer to it. So we say You didn't we, tell me that ahead of time. You did not I know. That you was have good. not mentioned that yet. Good man. We share we share a brain. That's it. But but I will say that as a firm, we're totally fine not being the front facing brand. We're fine being the Intel inside. And most advisors that are doing this, they want to be the front facing brand. They want to be very apparent to the participants. And so we're we're great with that. That's yeah. perfectly Yes. You know, it's interesting just in any industry, you know, the person who is closest to the end user customer is highest up on the value chain, Always, is yeah. least likely to be replaced. Not impossible, but least likely to yep. be, you know, replaced. And that actually leads into another question or another kind of, you know, topic that, that as we kind of wrap up. I think is interesting, right? So you've got these, you know, you've got the the really large record keepers, the large asset managers. Again, the mutual fund industry and the 401k industry grew up together mainly because, you know, you had product on the fund side, right? And you had distribution on the 401k side. The the big players that have captured, I mean, it's really been an arms race. And at the end of the day, and and Vanguard started to kind of pull away as capturing, you know, a huge amount of not just asset flow in general, but target date flow. I think they, they over the past couple of years, have probably captured 50% of the target date flows within the industry, which is massive. But then you obviously, you have T. Rowe Price that's in there. You have, I think, Fidelity, which had a lot, a lot of legacy positions. I would say American funds as well. Those first three are all really large record keepers. They work with large plans and, you know, you got to have a lot of, you know, a lot of, you got to have $52 million plans to equal $100 million plan. So some of those big, those big larger providers kind of tier one that have play in that mid to large space are obviously capturing a lot of the assets and a lot of the flow. And, you know, if you're a fund company and you're not one of those three, and I would say American funds, which plays more, they have a record keeping platform in the small market space, but they've obviously had great performance. I think probably, you know, maybe the best performance out of all target date funds over the, you know, the, the, past probably three, five, 10 years. And so they're leveraging that. But if you fall outside one of those four, I mean, you've basically, you've been shut out of the, out of the target date fund market. Yeah. And, and, you know, from a fund company standpoint, I mean, you're, you're really, a lot of these asset managers are struggling, right? Especially if you're more active, you know, I think mm -hmm. if anything, there's been a huge shift in passive and passive only represents or index only represents about, I don't know, 30 or 35% of the total investable market in the world right now. Mm -hmm. But it's been growing like crazy at the expense of active funds. And I think there are probably still, I mean, we lean very passively, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, but I think what's happened is you still see active managers out there. It's just kind of the crappy high cost active managers adding no value or the ones that are going to being kind of pushed away. But if you're yeah. a fund company and you've lost the target date fund battle and you're not getting back in there, what are you seeing with some of these asset managers, how they're thinking about managed accounts? And is it a way for if I'm a fund company and I don't have a target date fund or I do and it just gets no flow because I don't have any distribution for it? 
are they viewing kind of managed accounts as a way to kind of get back in the game, if you will? What have you seen from that perspective? That's exactly what we're seeing. You know, if you're an asset manager, you know, if five years ago, that model, the, the so think about it like a fund company that doesn't have like a record keeping right. arm. Let's that's say. right. That's right. So, I mean, if, you, if you're a fund company with a record keeping arm, that's great for the fund company because they can just sell those funds to all those participants so that that's, that's their model and it's effective. At least they're trying to, I would say advisors have done a good job of weeding out some of those, pushing back on that in a way that, you know, and you're starting to see some games. I write about it in the fiduciary formula. You're starting to see some games by record keepers looking to, you know, back into some other ways to get more profitable revenue, but but, sorry, but just wanted to kind of point that out. Yeah. So you've got the defined contribution investment only industry, DCIO, which, which are those asset managers that, that really don't have, generally, they, they, they don't have the record keeping arm. So they're out there trying to get flow inside of retirement plans. And, you know, three, four, five years ago, they were doing that by entertaining, you know, and still producing kind of these thought leadership pieces oftentimes having nothing to do with their investments, but all these other value add tools. And oh, by the way, I hope that leads to me getting flow in a plan. Right. The right. last two minutes of that hour long conversation where they were talking about practice management, it's like, hey, let me yeah. tell you about my large cap value fund. Right, right. And and so, you know, I think that model is antiquated and it's not effective anymore. And so you've got these firms saying, okay, if we want to be in the defined contribution space, which is a huge opportunity still and will continue to grow, what's our play? And there's really, we're seeing two strategies there. One is some firms considering getting in, getting back into or getting into for the first time the record-keeping business, which many of them, as you know, got out of. They're seeing those big firms and having that captured audience and saying, maybe we need to get back in if we really want to be in this business. That's, that's difficult. That's a big strategic shift. And it's probably pretty expensive to go there. The other is getting into a managed account or some other sort of model type solution. So maybe they're getting inside a CIT that an advisor has built or some kind of you know, risk-based model. There are some now going as far as saying, we believe managed accounts are the future and we're not just trying to get a spot in a managed account. That's great. We'll try that. But we also are now going to develop our own managed account with our own allocation methodology, which they'll then promote as superior. And, and there's a lot of interesting work being done there. So it's great. But then they have they need that integration. That's where they fall short. And I think there are some that underestimate how high that barrier to entry is. And maybe they've pitched the idea to a record keeper. Record keeper says, I like it. Then they're stuck. And so that's that's where so know, where Stadium could be the intel inside is effectively you could the asset manager say hey you come up with the you know the allocation methodology you know you fill it out with the fund your funds if you will but you're going to leverage Stadium effectively to be able to scale this to all our record keeping relationships you know the 16 we have in place and probably more to come yeah. you know you're effectively instead of you having to build it one off with all of these different record keepers you're going to be able to kind of leverage our infrastructure, if you will, to implement and deploy a managed account solution. Exactly. I mean, and we see some of these firms are very proud and probably rightfully so of the managed account product they've built. Um, And they haven't thought about how am I actually going to distribute this thing? 
and the keys to the kingdom in our business are record keeper integrations. That could change with technology and innovation, but today that's the deal. And so we've seen some kind of build it and then say, we can't distribute this anywhere. And, and that's where firms like us, and there's other firms that will, that will build the connection, but those aren't necessarily firms that have done it for very long, but also already have multiple record keeping platforms. Right. So it, it's a new build and that means speed to market is very slow. We're, we're doing, we're doing both. And I don't know there's going to be a hundred asset managers that go down that path, but I think the smart ones are doing that. And in some cases, they're also monetizing it without having to use their funds. So they're just charging like a managed account fee. And they say, hey, Josh, use whatever funds you want. We have a methodology like like a stadium, charge that. Now, ultimately, what they would love is flows to their funds. That's the business. Right. But right. some are opening up their minds to actually more of an RIA type fee mm. because they know they can't always guarantee that their funds would be included. So there's a, there's risk there. Yeah. And that's one way to mitigate that. It, it is an interesting, if I just think from an asset manager and the, the, the quote, the comment you made, which was maybe chuckle a little bit is like how proud they are of like these managed account solutions that they've created. Yeah. I kind of think, well, most of them probably have target date funds and they're not proud of like the target date funds as well. And if, like, what's the differentiator if they haven't been able to get the target date fund series entrenched in a platform? I mean, really, the managed account is the same type of thing. You got to go in and you got to sell whoever the, the gatekeeper is, whether maybe it's an advisor or maybe it's a, a plan sponsor or whatnot. So interesting where kind of the, the technology and the innovation is going, I think, remains to be seen with some of these asset managers if they're able to, you know, to actually do it. At the end of the day, probably in that case, you're really still married to performance. Uh, and that's actually a question, like how do you, you know, how do you calculate performance with managed accounts since it's really, in a lot of ways, gonna be individualized? Is that a, is that something that like, is there, I'm assuming there's not, not every participant has, you know, if you have a thousand participants, you don't have a thousand unique portfolio allocations. Right. Right. I imagine maybe you have 20 or 25 allocations that kind of run the spectrum, but you're not like, it's not a, a, a truly individualized instance for every single individual. You got to yeah, fit them yeah. into a bucket a little bit. How yeah. do you, but how do you look at performance of managed accounts? Let's say at more of a, a plan sponsor, fiduciary kind of plan level, not down to kind of the individual participant experience. Yeah, it's a great question because it's a challenge that a lot of advisors have and, and many managed account providers don't actually produce performance. You know, some of the ones you've mentioned, they because of what you said, they just say, you know, that the record keeper has the ability to produce the personal performance, you know, which is fine and that's the way some do it, but and in our case, generally we have over 500 portfolios that we're using. So, it's not maybe fully customized per person, but it's pretty darn customized based on having that many portfolios. So, so when you define portfolio, are you saying 500 different individualized allocations or 25 allocations, but we may have 500 because we're using different funds within those portfolios? It's more the former. So, you know, if, if you think about it, we behind the scenes typically use, we might use six, seven, eight, nine glide paths that someone would fall onto one of those glide paths. And then if you look at a different allocation per age, we actually, in some 
some point may tweak the allocation every year on their birthday. So if you've got age 21 to age 70, you know, times seven or eight glide paths, that's where all those portfolios come yeah, that's from. That's, that's kind of, you know, that's somewhere between, right? Yeah, it's 50, 50 times six, seven, eight, nine, something along. If we're those using 11 glide paths. Yes, yeah, so those numbers grow. Okay. That's, there's a construct there, right? It's not just everybody gets a new one. So because of that construct, we have the ability then to produce performance. Generally, we're not going to produce it for every single portfolio, but from a fiduciary perspective, we can produce, you know, kind of performance for for the core portfolios across those glide paths. So we have the technology, we've actually built a lot of in-house technology to, to have the ability to produce that performance. But that is an area that is can be a challenge with some managed account providers who either aren't able, aren't allowed, whatever it may be, to produce that performance. But that is a, that is part of what we we do. Got it. Got it. Fascinating. There's so much more to kind of managed accounts. Even somebody kind of in the you know they're in the industry have kind of learned a ton today. And sounds like you know you guys are doing some really really cool stuff. And you know obviously. We'll see how things evolve. I, I think, what, like, if you were to think about this as like a baseball game, like, what inning do you think managed accounts are? Like, what what inning of the ball game do you think uh, we are as it relates to managed accounts? You know, managed accounts have been around about as long as target date funds. Interestingly enough, yet they're just a fraction of the assets that target date funds have. But so I would say we're in the very early innings still. And that's because of some of those hurdles that, that we talked about. Those barriers. Those barriers. I think the growth, though, is going to be steep moving forward for all the other reasons. And I do think they're going to begin eating into some of the market share that target date funds have had. No doubt, target date funds are going to continue to be successful. But I think as managed accounts become more competitive, become more innovative, the cost goes down, the flexibility, all the stuff we talked about, there are going to be more sponsors and advisors that say, maybe that does make more sense. And so I think it's kind of been this very, very, you know, flat growth curve for a number of years. And I see that turning, turning significantly. It may not be in the next six months per se, but over time, I think in the next, you know, two, three, four, five years in our business, I, I think we're going to look back and say, man, this is a better way to do it. You know, we're doing things. It's no different than you used to use the Sears catalog to shop for Christmas. And now you go on Amazon and they know what you want before you even know what you want. And we look back and say, I can't believe we used to do it that way. I do think that's going to be the case at some point down the road, whether that's three, five, 10 years, I don't know. But we're pretty convinced that is going to be the way we look at things at some point. So early, but starting to move. Yeah. Yeah, it seems, you know, it's interesting. So much of what you guys do is technology enabled. And, you know, you just look at fintech in general. Most of the fintech, we've talked about this before, has been focused on kind of the private wealth side. I would say from like a technology, you know, integration standpoint or a technology utilization standpoint, kind of the retirement industry outside of record keepers who are putting massive amounts of spend into their technology, actual kind of enablement tools for the advisor community are pretty lacking on a variety of fronts. I mean, you probably remember that back from your days in the advisory, you know, world. And, you know, it hasn't improved that much, you know, since then. And so I, I suspect that 
the more success that I, I, I suspect that the tip of the spear for that growth is probably going to be the advisory community. And, you know, if there can be technology enablement, you know, advisors who really want to kind of get, you know, value add up. And ultimately, you know, it's, it's as the world goes more specialized, you don't have many plans that don't have some type of intermediary associated with them. Some advisor might be a specialist, might not. Obviously, upmarket, you're seeing it trend mostly towards specialists. Very few plans work without an advisor or rely on like their record keeper for, you know, fund selection like they may have in the past. And so, you know, the more that these tools are available and these platforms and these capabilities are actually deliverable for advisors, and it sounds like you're starting to have success with some of those those larger firms that may be operating at scale right now or trying to operate at scale, that'll be a big driver of that growth over time. No question. I mean, this is the first time, say over the past 18 to 24 months that we've seen your specialist advisors take a strong interest in managed accounts and go so far as to build their own. Yeah. Historically, you saw managed accounts up market because financial engines was the leader, as you said, and they sold directly to jumbo plan sponsors. And then kind of push the record keepers to then build. You've seen it in the small end through advisors that didn't specialize. Now we're seeing this growth in kind of that middle space with your specialists who are doing it for all the reasons we talked about. And right. I believe that once you get wind in the sails from that community, that's when this thing takes off. And, and we're just at the beginning of that right now. And, and that's probably the main reason we're so bullish. And, you know, as a firm, culturally, we believe in the value strongly in the value that plan advisors bring to sponsors and participants. So that we only sell through advisors. And you know, based on my background, I, I I know firsthand how much value firms like Greenspring bring to their clients. It's remarkable, and I think there's more firms that that are that are able to to do that. I think to the extent we can align ourselves as a firm with that community that's where we're going to see growth. There are some firms out there that are competing with that community. And that I think my personal opinion and really the opinion of Stadium is that's not a smart strategy. You've got to align and support your business model, your advisor partner's business model. And, and then you'll see, you'll see a lot of, a lot of growth in that, in this niche. Right. So thinking about that over the next, let's say five to 10 years, how do you think the retirement industry is going to change? And specifically, you know, how do you see managed accounts? Obviously, you think that growth is going to continue, but but how do you see it kind of fitting into that evolution? And where do you think, you know, if we look back and call it 20, you know, G uh, July of 2030, and we look back, you know, 10 years, what do you think will have evolved? How do you think the industry will have changed during that time? Well, I think very specific to this topic, I think you're going to see more personalized, professionally managed solutions at lower price points. You're going to see more choice, I think you're going to continue to see advisors like your firm grow and prosper and do well and, and eat up market share because I think more plan sponsors are going to see that value, understand that value and recognize they need that to run a successful plan. So I don't see that trajectory changing at all. If, if anything, I think you'll see more and more consolidation of advisory firms and, and you know continuing to gain a lot of market share, rightfully so. So I think you're going to keep seeing that. I think you're, uh, I don't see participants all of a sudden understanding how to invest their money. We haven't seen it in 20, 30 years. It's, I don't see that changing. It's going to be simplify, lower cost. I also think- Automate. 
continue to automate, automate the whole thing, right? Just you get employed by a company within a certain period of time, you're in, you're in at six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10% of your pay, and you're in a low cost personalized solution. And if you do nothing, you're, you're, you're doing okay. You're doing pretty well. The other big change I think is coming is right now, record keepers control the data. And I think that that's got to change over time where there's got to be technology that allows other entities that can provide value to participants to access that data more easily. So that's um, that middleware kind of clearinghouse, if you will, that is providing that kind of democratizing record proprietary yeah. record keeper data, or at least normalizing it into some format that allows for the easy flow and exchange between. Exactly. Entities. And I mean, most record keeping systems are based on 20, 30 year old technology. And so Pretty COBOL or something like that, that. Yeah. And so a lot of good record keepers have added tremendous amount of technology on top of that, which is great, but you know, we still see it and, and you see it in your business where it's oftentimes hard for a record keeper to build something new or to make a change or to share data because those systems are not that flexible. You're starting to see, you know, Vestwell and some of these other kind of right. innovators that are building technology that is built in a way that has much more flexibility and that's modular. And there's, I think that's going to be something that we will see more and more of. And I don't know if that would partly be current record keepers changing and evolving. That also could be new entrance into the market. You know, right. heck, there's a, there's Apple, there's Google, and there's been all this talk over time about those firms. Do some of those big tech firms get into our space? It's hard to break in, but will that begin to happen? And will they change the world for us in the 401k space? I'm fascinated to see if that happens. I tend to think we're going to see some of that, you know, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So, Knowing that kind of this podcast, kind of the goal is to make ERISA fiduciaries smarter. If you could give listeners kind of one piece of advice that you think would make them smarter, what would it be? I would say, and I think your clients know this, and I think a lot of plan sponsors know this, but the best thing you can do as a plan sponsor is to hire an awesome specialized advisor. That's the best thing you can do. You know, if I'm a plan sponsor, I'm running a company, even, even if I started my own plumbing company, even having been in this business for 21 years, I would align myself with a specialist advisor. I think that has been the best thing a plan sponsor could do. I don't see it as any different today. I think if you do that, and that's your most important decision is make sure you hire the right advisor that has the right business model, that advisor will then walk you down the right path, whether that's managed accounts, whether that's target dates, whether it's auto features, record keeper selection, all of that. I think that is the single best decision or biggest decision plan sponsor has to make. That's the other thing is keep an open mind to innovation. You know, there's a lot happening and, and clearly, you know, my, my bias is going to be towards managed accounts because I live it every day, but keep an open mind about about tweaks you can make that would ultimately achieve the goal that I hope everyone has, which is how do we enable people to retire, quote unquote, which really means have the choice to stop working one day because you have enough money, right? Like that's what we're all working towards. And 
think, t- you know, working backward from that beyond just the fiduciary check boxes, what are the things that you could put into place to make that a reality? And I think having the right advisor and then thinking of innovation, things like managed accounts are really important steps along that process. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, what about as far as can you let listeners know where can they go to learn more about Stadium and what you know the company's up to? Where can they connect with you? What's a, what's a good way for people to you know stay co- connected and in touch and find out more about what you guys are doing? Yeah, the website StadiumMoney.com. and so there's a lot of good information on the website. There's a way to contact Stadium generally through through that site. Uh, Todd.lacy at stadiummoney.com, L-A-C-E-Y. That's, you know, anyone, of course, is always welcome to reach out to me. We also have, as I mentioned, we have a team of salespeople in the field that work with advisors, plan sponsors. So, so that would be the best way to get in touch with us. And again, know that this is all we do. All we do is managed accounts. So we clearly want to sell business, but we also, I think, are in a position to provide education on how these things work and in a way that, that, doesn't just pitch our offering, but kind of talks about, as we did today, kind of the landscape and things for advisors, for plan sponsors to, to really consider. So probably through the website or certainly directly to me is the best way to, to reach out to us. Okay. I'll make sure to put in the show notes, you know, we'll have links to that so people can, uh, can reach out and find you. But this has been an awesome conversation. It's been a lot of fun. I've learned a ton about managed accounts kind of through this whole process and always admired you and, and respected what you've done and to kind of see what you've done since you've gone to Stadium is, it's impressive. I mean, the growth you guys have had even in the past few years and the number of relationships you've been able to kind of build to kind of fulfill your mission is really, really cool. So thanks for being a guest and great insights and it's been fun. This has been awesome. I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. I appreciate your friendship and the admiration is mutual. So you've been a a leader in this business for a long time and I love, love having watched you guys grow. So thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. Hopefully everybody has gotten a great, you know, some perspectives. It's helped make you a smarter ERISA fiduciary. And we are glad that you listened this week and stay tuned for more. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Todd Lacey from Stadium. I hope you enjoyed our discussion, have a better understanding about managed accounts, and it helped make you a smarter ERISA fiduciary. If you'd like more information or you'd like to connect with me, please go to www.fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, free tools, and online courses. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I make sure to read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast. And now for some disclosures. Greenspring Advisors is a registered investment advisor. The opinions I express on this show are my own and do not reflect the opinions of my guests or the companies they work for. All statements and opinions expressed are based upon information considered reliable, although it should not be relied upon as such. Any statements or opinions are subject to change without notice. The information and content presented on the show is for educational purposes only 
and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for any individual. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from a qualified tax, legal, or investment advisor to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. And past performance is not indicative of future performance.